2 Peter 1.4 says, By which He granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Um, Peter gives us a, uh, a great deal of hope in this passage. At the same time, he really pinpoints for us something that we need to talk about today, especially in a world that is as complicated as the world in which all of us live. And that is a, a corruption, the corruption of sinful, uh, the sinful corruption that comes, as Peter says, because of sinful desire. That the corruption happens in our lives because there is dwelling within us sinful desire. Now, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 2.16, he says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So now, once again, we, we lean on the teachings of Scripture. There's another author of Scripture who says that, that the world around us is corrupt by its very nature. And that we can be beguiled by it. We can be drawn in, lured in to its issues, to its problems. That we can take on its attitudes and its ideas so easily. It can rob us of our courage and instill within us a, a kind of cowardice. It happens so easily. So for that reason, we need to look back at the Scriptures now and ensure that we're warring against these things. Look, keeping ourselves free from corruption is the most vital aspect of our daily walk with Christ Jesus. I've talked about it for a number of years now. I think I've always saw it within the Scriptures, I think until the last, say, five years. I probably didn't have the, the language to talk about it. And that was how vital that it was that we bring honor and glory to God by pursuing Him through holiness. We don't want to talk about personal holiness. And I think this is a strange thing. I've said it before. And if, if, it's a, if it's a repetition, I do apologize for that. I think one of the big mistakes we make as, um, as, uh, as, as believers is that we can regard the majority of sinfulness as kind of a, a young person's problem. We seem to think that as we get older, somehow there's some things that become easier. And what I would say is that the, that the evidence of Scripture belies that, denies it. Um, men, the kings of, of, of Israel and Judah, were bigger fools as old men than they ever were as young children. Than they ever were. That sin wasn't a, just a recurring problem, but sin was a problem that continued to be a problem and, and grew kind of its, its intensity as they grew older. It may very well be that like with a lot of things, we start to think we have a handle on it, that we can, we can deal with this, and, and then we, we're, we're mistaken. And so we, we have to be, as believers, conscious of the idea that if we are not doing everything we can to maintain our holiness, then inevitably corruption is going to worm its way in. It's going to find a way into our lives. Look, um, this idea of making ourselves free from corruption impacts our ability to preach and to share the truth. And I, listen to what I said. I said our ability. 
not just mine, absolutely there's no doubt about that, that if I'm not living a holy life, then why in the world would anyone want to come and listen to what I have to say? If the corruption, the sinfulness of my life is so obvious, then why in the world would anybody want to hear what this man has to say? But understand this much. I am not the only validation of the message that's preached within this church. You are an equal validation. If we are not pursuing God through holiness, if our marriages and our business life and the way we conduct ourselves in our recreation is not completely above board, the people will assume that that is tolerated within this body of believers, won't they? There's no reason why they shouldn't. They are, whether we like it or not, they assume that the theology that's, that's taught here is practiced in our lives. They're going to assume that. Why wouldn't they? It makes perfect sense. We're the ones that are slow to embrace that. The world around us has already got that down. So what we have to do is realize that when we are not living a, when we are not living a life that denies and that, that wars against corruption, then we are hurting the gospel ministry of this body of believers. In our focal passage, Peter described to us the immensity of hope which comes through to the undeserving like us through the blood of Jesus shed for our sins. This is a hopeful passage. Now, I want to add one thing as we kind of make our way slowly through, through 2 Peter, and that is that the most pivotal part of 2 Peter, of course, is 2 Peter chapter 2, which details for us what happens to the church that allows corruption to grow within its midst. It's a companion to the book of Jude. Um, it, it details what happens when, when people are in, in your church who, is, as John MacArthur called them, spiritual terrorists. They're there to, to destroy the work of the church, not to see it grow. The exclusivity of the, of the uh, chosen people of the church is on display in 2 Peter because it has to be exclusive. This only works if everyone together embraces those same definitions of holiness, the same definitions of doctrine, of orthodoxy. It only works that way. And when, it, when it, Peter uses this book to detail what happens when we, as those who are the stewards of this, allow corruption to grow in our midst. So, so this is an important book, and it's an important topic, and it is all about our responsibility to it. Um, without the right payment at the appropriate time, I mean Jesus, we would all die laden with our iniquities and condemned by our transgressions. However, triumphantly, Jesus has borne the sins of the world on the cross for His joy and our infinite good. At the heart of everything we talk about here, at the heart of every idea that we would espouse from this pulpit that would say that you and I need to refrain from things or abstain from things, at the heart of that is the fact that Jesus has purchased our freedom to do so. Without the blood of Jesus shed for your sins and mine, without the fact that we have been turned loose from the bondage to sin, without that we would have no ability to follow any notions of morality or ethics or integrity. None of that would matter because we couldn't do it. Could never do it. But the reality here is that God has set us free to live a rad radically, markedly different kind of life. He's done that for us. Born again so he could die for the joy 
of bearing our sins. By way of the cosmic art, she means cosmic act of divine self-sacrifice, lost sinners can be free from the bondage of death and sin and walk in new liberty. We can walk a different way than we could ever walk before. Now, I think I've told you this and I want to reiterate. One of the issues that maybe we need to do, just as a small gathering today, is look back at our lives before the cross. And think about what God delivered us from. I think sometimes those things were so unpleasant that we closed that door and we've never dared peek again because we're still so deeply ashamed of who God found with His blood. I think we need to look back at that and see what God really saved us from. Because I think we can start to believe some unsound things that our sins weren't so bad. They weren't quite as bad as we thought they were. But the reality is they were deep and dark and black and condemning. Through the Christ Jesus and achievement of the cross, we are given by His grace dear and magnificent promises for eternity and for the existing world. We are given precious promises. This is what He'll do through us. One, sanctification. The power to change internally. Now look, I know that the, the mantra of the Deep South for everybody who's got problems is, I want to get my life right. And we've made a lot of fun of that in this pulpit. Probably shouldn't have, to be honest with you. Because it does acknowledge one thing. It's wrong in a saving sense, there's no doubt. But it's right in this realization that we are the core of the problem. It's right in the realization that when I'm lost, everything about me is bad. Everything about me is tainted. Even if I'm the hardest working guy in the world, the reality is I'm just working for myself. I'm just working for my own good. And I couldn't care less about anybody else really. So even something that we could look at and we could say, my goodness, this is something to lift up. In reality, in the life of a lost man, it's not at all. In the life of a lost man, there are no admirable qualities. In the life of a lost man, everything is tainted by their sin. This idea of getting our lives right, of, of understanding the notion of sanctification, what it does is tells us, or tells the world, that at the very least I understand that I am the issue. Sanctification is the power for us to change on the inside. For we must be changed. Not externally, not, not in just doing a few things differently or this thing differently. It's a reality to be changed radically from the heart outward. Provision. Provision. One of the great struggles of a fallen world. It pro providing what is needed to make the journey is one of those great promises of God. That if we will do things His way, we will have what we need. Now listen to me. We will not have what the world says is success. We will not have what we always dreamed of having as a little boy or a little girl. We will not have what our husband or our wife says is essential. We will have what we need. If there's one tragedy 
in, in especially the Church of the Deep South, brothers and sisters, is that we have redefined provision to mean that we get what we've always wanted. We've redefined it. And so what we do is, we therefore compromise on other issues so that we can have what we said we've always wanted. And there's no compromise in this. And then also, direction. So if the promises are sanctification, change from the inside, provision, getting what we need for the journey to bringing glory to God, and then finally direction, being told where we are going. A true compass setting which will glorify God and not us. A real comp compass setting. Look, the cross manifests within believers the ability to utilize the promises of God in employing and exemplifying the divine nature. In other words, this, the, the, the application of the cross to our lives gives you and I the opportunity to now go forth and not only believe what we believe, but have what we believe form our lives again new. So that we don't just believe in God, but we look like we believe in God. We have not just believed Christ for salvation, but we now live and talk and act and look as if we have done that. It is not the best kept secret in the world, our faith, but it is the most audacious kind of faith. So that we can talk and conduct and live and mourn and rejoice in the way we've always really wanted to. Because we saw that and we said, man, that's what a Christian looks like. And it never was us. It was always somebody else. He has given us, through the cross, the ability to do that. Those great promises lived out in us can make us over again to look the way we know deep, deep down a believer is supposed to look and act and think. Paul explained in Ephesians 4.24, believers can put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self. We all wanted to be new. Not a veneer, not a shell on the outside. We wanted to look new and feel new and be new and believe that we're new every day of our lives. We want to get up in the morning with our Cheerios tasting brand new because we're new. We wanted that. Look, believers made new by Christ with the new possibilities and new priorities. Folks, it's both. Both of these have to change. Both of these. Look, I've been in this 23 years, and I'll be honest with you. This is an aspect that I've been preaching every day, and I've never seen it happen. I didn't see it happen with teenagers, and I haven't seen it happen with senior adults. This idea of not just embracing, but we want the new possibilities. We want to go to our grave feeling and acting victorious. We want to be impervious to sorrow. We want to be impervious to, to, um, to fear and things like that. But you don't often hear people talking about, I may need to have new priorities. Now, I'll tell you why that is. Because that stresses out middle-aged people. And I'm middle-aged. Because I can easily look back over 52 years and realize that a giant portion of it I lived with absolutely the wrong priorities. I pursued things I never should have pursued. I chased after things that were not of God at all, but were of the world around me. I called them holy because everybody else was doing it in the church. Made a lot of messes that would have never been made. 
because I should have never desired those things to start with. Brand new priorities. Not just with little children. It's fantastic that we're able to raise up generations of, of missional kids in this church that are going to want things that, to be honest with you, their parents didn't want at that age. But there's absolutely nothing that says that an old man or an old woman in this room with me right now can't turn their back on a lifetime of thinking one way and think a radically new way. That's what the gospel does, folks. It sets us free from the way we've always been to be the way God wants us to be. That's why it is so powerful. That's why it's so demanding. Finally, the reality of born-again salvation. Now listen, we all know that's the only kind, right? There is no salvation of being born again at all. Our Lord demands in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, if you are not born again, if anyone within the sound of my voice is not born again, then you are not truly saved. Because there's only one kind of salvation, and it is born, being born again. The reality of born again salvation is that we are now separated from the intrinsic corruption of the sinful and corrupt world. Whether we like it or not, whether we are comfortable with it or not, if you are born again today, then you are not a part of this world. You may want to live like it. You may want to go back and be that. You may wish you could handle things the way you once did. But the reality is you are different now whether you will embrace the difference or not. Your nature has changed. The spirit within you has changed. Your very heart has changed. Then made new. I think that's what's so hard on the church. Is that we have, a, we have a lot of the church in this world pursuing the same things the lost people do. The lost people don't care. But we're torn up by it. We're, we feel guilty about it. You know why? Because anybody who violates their own nature is going to be a person in agony. So, so much of the church is in agony. So much of the church is so problematic. And we are that way because we've been chasing things we had no right to chase. From the beginning, God's plea with the world was to relent of rebellion and turn to His face. That's what He's demanded. Our salvation is the answer to Christ's plea to us through the prophet in Ezekiel 33, 11. It says, says to them, as I live, declare, to me say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn away from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? What does he say? His pleasure is that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God has called the church to turn from what was our way and live. To turn to God's way. Not what our friends thought was right, not what we could manage, not what we could rationalize, not what we'd say was good enough, not what we thought was okay and that God would accept that, not depending on the fact that God is an understanding God, not embracing the fact that God is a judging God, but that we would turn our back on our way to His way. Not my way, not Brother Brian's way, not Brother Kyle's way. Not the way the leadership decides, but God's way. 
But salvation is the ultimate turning back. And the course of God's will for our lives is away from the bitterness and the deprecation of the world and toward the glory of Christ for our lives. Everything out there, everything that that the world tries to lure us into is corrupt and evil and bankrupt and hurts and destroys. It decimates lives. Everything out there is just like that. He is calling us away from that. He's calling us to a glorious future. A beautiful future. A satisfying future. A future of peace. That's what He calls us to. However, desire, ambition, and genuine but misplaced love can stand in the way of our holiness. Paul warns us in in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Good company ruins bad morals. He also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, But test everything, hold fast what is good. What we're talking about today, folks, is right in line with the teaching of the Scriptures. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Now, I, I think it's amazing to say this in a room where the men are so mature. So mature. Because men, we think deception is the world of young men. And how many of us will have to say in this world that we have been deceived by thinking that something would not be bad, but in fact it was terrible? How many times are we deceived into thinking that we could go along with that and in the end it wouldn't hurt us? How many times do we tell ourselves the lie, well, I'm just doing what I have to do? How many times? I know I've been deceived so often. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. But bad company ruins good morals. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. God has not told us to be naive, but to be wise. But to test everything. Everything. That dedication and discernment are required to resist the temptation of the world. If there's one thing we're being called to today, it's not some great emotional outburst, but a brand new dedication. Say, God, I'm not going to fall for the devil's tricks anymore. I'm not going to allow the world to tell me that everything is okay when I desperately know it is not okay. Not at all. The protection of our lives and hearts from the corruption of this world is not just to defend ourselves against sin, but to acknowledge the allure of ambition and how it solicits our natural pride. This is where I, to be honest with you, this is where I fit in this so deeply. As I, as I was in preparation. As I was in prayer. This is where the preacher preached to himself. That natural pride. And I don't even mean a bad pride. I mean the kind of pride that rules us when we've done, when we've honestly done a good job. When we have handled a problem and dealt with that kind of natural pride that comes, men and women, with being a father and a mother, that with being a husband and a wife, comes with leading a household. Look, um, Peter makes this point in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. There's some of those things out there that we're naturally drawn to that don't feel like bad things. doesn't feel like a bad thing. But because we're not approaching it wisely, we're not approaching it within the, with the information of the Scriptures, we are now lured into it and it wages war against ourselves. We never saw it coming. We didn't think 
we didn't think that that would ever cause that problem. But the Scripture said it did. It would. Look, admittedly, I know the truth of the Scriptures, but the world often drives me bonkers. I will tell you, I'm having trouble today, and as I went over this all weekend, I've had trouble accepting the words I know I've got to come in and preach to you. The world drives me crazy. Look, I, I know I'm striving imperfectly to be a man of God worthy of leading a church and worthy of leading his, his family. And as a leader who both preaches the gospel and models it for those around him, I'm constantly hammered with a disappointment and angst that comes from watching the worldly prosper and those committed to Christ languish. It drives me crazy. You don't have to work very long in this world to find out that if you're an absolutely sinful, evil man, you can go very far in this world. And that the uglier you talk and the uglier you act, it seems like that's what people want. And what I said today was, I can't really think of any enterprise in the world that does not reward acting like an ignoramus. The meaner and more hateful you are, the more sinful, the more openly sinful you are, the more this world says, that's exactly what I want. That's what I want to hire. Make him the leader. He cusses better than anybody. Now, I wish it wasn't true, and I wish it was just my own histrionics. I'm getting older, I'm more convinced of this and not less convinced of it. That if you really want to get over, get, get by in this world, if you really wanted to pick you, you need to be the most coarse and evil person you can be. Now, I know there's some histrionics in that, there's no doubt. And there are incredibly good men, incredibly good men, that God chooses in His beneficence, in His sovereignty, to bestow great positions of leadership. But I guarantee you this much, you chew on it more, you think about the bosses you've had in your life, how many of them did you, would you not want to share much time with? How many of them could you not imagine even in a church pew, much less in leadership, much less in leadership in God's house. So I admit it's frustrating. I, I struggle to name an area in which it doesn't seem that 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 being wicked helps men prosper. Arrogance and self confidence are desired and coveted, while humility and obedience are scorned. Every time. James, in James 4.16 says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. To be like that is an evil thing. By the definition of Scripture. Look, possibly the American dynamic which values roguish independence is at play. I think there's no doubt. I think, as we're speaking to Americans here, I think there's something about Americans that we, for some reason, secretly think... That guy who says he can do anything in the world and brags on himself is the one we're all supposed to follow. I think secretly we think that's right and that to be humble and to, to try to live like Christ is secretly not effective in leading. In leading. Now, mind you, this dynamic works only works in a pyramidal structure where the rogue is on top. It probably does work in some situations to follow a rogue. But I'm just telling you this. You're not going to follow ten rogues. You're not going to find twenty that are the best. Follow twenty are the best at everything. You're going to have just one. Just one. 
Now, I think that's why, and look, and I've seen it in church now, don't get me wrong. I've, I've seen leadership in church that's just like that. I'll tell you this much, roguish behavior does not enable a plural leadership the way the church is. The church is plurally led. We are led uh, by, a, uh, by a group of men who seek the heart and the will of God. Through this, we maintain the focus on Jesus and not on any individual person. The reason why the church needs to be plurally led is because it's always about the one at the very top. It's always about Christ. Look, the great allurement for us in provision for our families, a natural sympathetic desire that Christ addresses in Luke chapter 12, verses 30-31, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Obviously, as a man, I must reorient my thinking away from the monetary and career success that is the gauge in our culture. I was confronted this weekend by the fact that I was probably wanting some things that I thought were okay, but simply put, God may not want for me. He may want for some of us to say to stay small potatoes. We've been small potatoes our whole lives, and He may want us to stay that way. Because what we're aspiring to is so much less important than what He wants us to do. That we had fallen for the trap and built up in our minds that to have all these things was somehow liberty and instead it's enslavement. And to have none of them was actual liberty. However, men, it does not mean that we are not hurt and discouraged by the doubt-filled perception that the profane and the guileless advance and their families appear to flourish. I know you've thought this before. We've thought it before. But man, just when we're starting to maybe try to improve ourselves a little bit, they knock us back down. Have you ever thought that before? I have. A lot. A lot. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt to go to work and realize you have to work for someone that, to be honest with you, you don't respect. Someone you would never model. You never want to take on any of their habits at all. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, guys. It just means that God, the gospel, transplanted in our lives has to be so enduring that we transcend all that. It's not that it doesn't hurt, but that it shouldn't matter. It just plain shouldn't matter. Look, our Lord prepared us through His Word to understand our place in the world in which we are soldiers and not homesteaders. We're here to work. We're here to work for the good of the gospel. We're here to give our lives every drop of our blood to see the gospel proceed around the globe. And then after that, we go to our real home. This isn't it. You're not from here. You're not from anywhere here. Even if you have fond memories of it. The reality is, the place we've got the most fond memories of, we've never been to. We've never been to glory. Because that's where we belong. That's what God prepared for us. That's our place. You know what? It's a lot easier to, to ignore the trappings of the world when you don't think they belong to you anyway. When you know you've got something better. In Psalm 73 verses 1-6, through 6, um, uh, the psalmist writes, Truly God is to 
is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my steps had almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped. You know, my, my feet almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. By way of the writing of Asaph, this is a psalm of Asaph, Christ outlines first the natural temptation that exists. The primary corruption that this world has to allure us with. The professional prosperity and the personal boom that we witness in the society around us. Listen to me. All we want to do is to give our families what we think they need. Right? Right. You know, I, mean, I remember uh, sitting out and watching kids driving out of the parking lot over here and thinking that, that they were driving cars that cost more than my house did when I lived in Collins. I thought it was a corruption. I was right. It was a corruption. But here's the reality. You want the reality of that? Almost every one of those mamas and daddies gave those cars because they thought they were doing a good thing for their kid. They didn't do it. Man, I, this is really going to mess them up. They didn't do that. You know why they did it? Because they thought they were doing the very best thing for their child. That's what they thought. See, that's the allure. The allure is to provide as the world says provide. It's to do as the world says do. It's to look around us and look over the hedge and see what everybody else has and say, I've got to have that. That's the allure. That's where it gets us. It's not sexual sin. It's not all these other ways. All that comes later. It's the desire to be like those we are not like at all. It's not merely a function of greed or avarice. Believers are not immune to these vices. But the unveilment of provision for our families and the desire to leave a palpable legacy. We want to die and leave something. Men and women, die and leave an inheritance of the gospel. Die and have taken your kids on mission trips. Die and have given everything you have to the glory of God. Die that way. And I guarantee you this much. Born-again children could never be more proud of their parents if that is true. The one thing my daddy gave me, the one thing my mama gave me, if they can say that is the gospel, then I'll tell you this much, they will be proud. Like Asaph, we see this bestowed so egregiously upon the arrogant and the wicked. Literally, the tantalization before us is the urge to achieve the way the world does. To compromise our principles and live sacredly in the light of Christ and in our lives of provision to live as this condemned world does. Look, at the same time, we're forced to concede that we are easily corrupted when exposed to the distractions of the world. As John warned in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in Him. The society in which we struggle is not our home at all. The wicked men of this world labor for what they cannot keep and strive for what they can never leave as an inheritance. The first conclusion that we must draw is that any investment that we make in this world is always tempered by the knowledge that the way of Christ is scorned by the populace. 
that any victory in the public arena is short-lived and that our work here is to, fulfill, is to fill the pews of heaven and not to achieve notoriety on earth. Finally, now Paul tells us in Colossians 1.13 that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Our response is to live holy and separate lives. To reject the ambitions and priorities of this world and to conduct ourselves as if the things of this world are passing away. It's not possible to live a Christ-centered life by the goals of this world. We can't take what the world does and remake it or revamp it to look like Jesus would say it. We cannot do that. It will not work. I'm going to ask you what holds you, what distracts you, what corrupts your way. Lay it aside today. Put it down. Walk away and never look back. Put your back to the world, to its cares, and your face to the dawning of the new day in Christ Jesus. How are we going to do this? Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus. Something, something I've spent so much of my life not doing. Trust Him. Trust Him that He'll meet our needs. That you'll never do without those things that are required for the journey. So that you can focus on the work He has for you to do. Do that. Do that. And we'll all live a life that brings honor and glory to God. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank You for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to share this truth. And I pray, Father God, that I've done it rightly. I pray, Father God, for those who are in, pre in, in person hearing this. Father God, I'm so thankful for our church. It's back together, Father God, even though it's in a different place, God. I am so thankful to be in a building with God's people, Father. I pray, God, for these who are here, for all those who weren't able to be here today, Father God. I pray for that joyous reunion of us all as we come together, Father God. As we come together, we honor you and we bring glory to you, Father God, by, by uniting and hearing the word. I pray for that time to come soon, Father God, and we ask you, please, God, to continue to bless us. In the name of Christ Jesus, Lord, I pray. Amen.